0: You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. Next up is acne, an approach for every age. So getting back to something practical that we see every day um, and hopefully some clinical pearls for you. Um, okay, disclosure. so basics. Everyone gets acne, 85% of people are gonna get acne at some times in their lives. But I think that the psychosocial impact can't be minimized because it really does have a profound impact on um, quality of life and the way and, and self-esteem, the way that teens are are seeing themselves in those very formative years. Um, quality of life has been just as atopic dermatitis compared to the impact in patients with asthma, epilepsy, or arthritis. So it is significant, and it it shouldn't be minimized. Um, we actually have a little bit more evidence now that there are certain populations that might even be even more adversely impacted by their acne, and those are sexual minorities. Sexual minorities have mood more mood disturbances, and they may be more at risk for depression and suicide, especially in the setting of their acne. So I always think that even if it's for a different visit, we should always be asking our patients if their acne bothers them and kind of take a little bit of a pulse um, on that during, during a visit. I would propose that the etiology of acne is actually kind of poorly understood. Um, We talk about disordered keratinization, influence of hormones, excess sebum production, Um, but I think there's an evolving literature that really points to the host response to cutaneous microorganisms on the skin, and this P. acnes, or cutobacterium acnes, is now it's called, interacting with the host immune response. And, and maybe it's more of a, of a genetic um, predisposition to these in, inflammatory states than we thought. But I think there's been a lack of innovation here for, for a little while. For example, we still don't really even have an evidence-based grading system for acne. Most people will grade it zero to four or mild, moderate, severe, and very severe. But there's no evidence-based grading system that, that's really all that helpful. And we're still using today the same topical treatments over the counter that I used when I had acne as a teen, um, and that is benzoyl peroxide, salicylic acid, topical retinoids. I'd say azelaic acid is a little bit more um, recent, but there's been kind of a lack of innovation overall, I think. So I don't know, more to come there. Hopefully someone else will, will figure some new topicals out. Um, In terms of evidence-based guidelines, there are some published in about 2013, and these are a really great practical reference um, for pediatricians, primary care, PA, I think this is a really good one to have on hand. Um, What I want to do in the talk today is go through every age, because acne by its very nature is classified based on its age of presentation. So we have neonatal acne, infantile acne, mid-childhood acne pre-adolescent and adolescent acne, and I want to take us through some evidence-based therapeutics and workup, talk a little bit about isotretinoin as well. So acne in terms of age of presentation, neonatal acne is the type of acne or acneiform eruptions that occur from birth to six weeks. Infantile acne um, kind of ends at from six, from six weeks to a year. And mid-childhood acne, take a little note of, that, of, that, uh, of those ages. Acne ages one to seven is actually kind of rare and needs um, some investigation. And then we have pre-adolescent acne, seven to 12, or the age of Maynard in girls, and then adolescent acne. So let's talk about neonatal acne. Is it true acne? Um, This is onsetting usually at two to three weeks of age. And though I do think that in the neonatal period, the true neonatal period, um, you can have true acne, and that is with comedones, with inflammatory papules and pustules, that most of the time this term baby acne is being used to describe cephalic pustulosis or the papulopustular eruption that we see in this, um, in this age group. And so this is really distinct from acne because we're not gonna see comedones here. We're just gonna see a little bit of scaly erythematous papules. And this is thought to be the host response and you know, reaction to malassezia organisms. And cephalic pustulosis is benign, and it typically remits spontaneously. Azole creams can be helpful, um, as can a low-potency topical steroid. And you may see this overlapping a lot, this cephalic postulosis with seborrheic dermatitis in the scalp, so cradle cap. And I do think that this is one of the earliest signs of skin barrier dysfunction, and it may be indicating that this neonate is more predisposed to atopic dermatitis. So just something to think about when you're, when you're looking at these babies. So infantile acne presents at six weeks to a year. Um, Though comedones and true acne can be seen, this is really rare. If you do see an infant that has true comedones, I think this does deserve a second glance in terms of physical exam. Um, The length of the baby, the weight, any sign of premature adrenarche um, should be evaluated. And if abnormal, infants with true acne should be sent to endocrinology. This is a good example of infantile acne. Um, There are true comedones, inflammatory papules. It's more common in males. Um, And in this case, true comedones and inflammatory lesions are present. And I would find that there is often a family history of more severe acne in in infants that that present this way. Um, And as I mentioned, in infancy, this deserves a second look, and we should be looking for signs of endocrine disturbance, but it's rare. So, looking at the height, the weight, signs of premature adrenarche, and if abnormal, referring to endocrinology. Infantile acne treatment is pretty much very similar to adolescent and pre-adolescent treatment. You can use a topical retinoid in infancy. That's fine to do and very effective. A topical benzyl peroxide liquid, topical or oral um, antibiotic, depending on the severity. And there are reports of isotretinoin being used off-label in infants. This is something that I have not had to do, thankfully, but it is reported and it can be done safely. Mid-childhood acne is a time when we should take a much closer look. Acne is rare in children ages 1 to 7, and this is a red flag because we really shouldn't be producing a lot of androgen during that time. So there is a a real concern if you see true comedones and inflammatory papules and pustules of acne in a child this age for hyperandrogenemia. And so we're looking for precocious puberty, things like Cushing syndrome, late-onset congenital adrenal hyperplasia, or um, a, a gonadal tumor androgen secreting tumor. So this is where you stop and you do a really good physical exam. You look um, at the genital area, look for um, signs of axillary or pubic hair or other signs of virilization. You evaluate the growth charts because linear growth acceleration can be predictive of premature um, puberty. And one really easy way to do this is a bone age or a hand wrist radiograph, and that's usually a first first thing that we will do before we get labs um, to screen for other possible um, hormonal disturbances. This is where we do need to refer um, to pediatric endocrinology or pediatric dermatology because this needs further workup. These are all the labs that you can um, and probably should be done in patients that have mid-childhood acne. I'm certainly not an endocrinologist. I rely heavily on my endocrinology colleagues, and I would refer to them before doing labs because I, I may miss something. Um, but certainly testosterone, LHFSH, and the whole list can be, can be done to rule out all of those things that may be the etiology of the mid-childhood acne. So let's move on to pre-adolescent acne. So this is the child ages seven to 12, and this is a common age for um, androgen activity to kind of be getting started. You can see comedones that typically start in the mid-forehead or maybe the ear um, and in the conche of the ears. And the lesions gradually spread to the chin and cheeks and become more inflammatory acne in this age range is normal, um, but if it's really very, very severe or persistent, you could consider other hormonal workup. And studies have shown that Um, androgen levels, such as DHEAS, are more elevated in children that do have um, adolescent acne, in particular, obviously, girls. And this could be an early manifestation of polycystic ovarian syndrome or the late-onset congenital adrenal hyperplasia. So in severe recalcitrant cases or on the early end of that spectrum, you may want to be just taking, again, another look. Um, Pre-adolescent acne is becoming more common here in North America, especially because puberty is actually starting to manifest earlier and earlier around age nine in girls right now. And the treatment mirrors that for adolescent acne, though in this particular age group, this can be a population that's a little hard to motivate in terms of their cleansers and topicals, but um, you can get there with with good topical therapies. And so what would you want to be doing? I think you would want to be optimizing topical care for predominantly comedonal acne, and make no mistake, the workhorse here is the topical retinoid. Um, You can certainly use a topical retinoid in combination with a benzoyl peroxide wash or topical combination therapy, which generally implies a topical retinoid, a benzoyl peroxide, either gel or wash, and a topical antibiotic used in combination. So when I say topical combination therapy, that's generally what I'm referring to. Um, Dr. Andrea Zanglin just wrote a really nice review article on acne in the New England Journal of Medicine, and she gives a really nice treatment algorithm that's very evidence-based for the management of um, mild, moderate, and severe acne in adolescents. And I think this is a really appropriate and really nice table for you guys to reference, for us all to reference. Um, and so it's here in your, um, in your materials. So let's move on to the adolescent acne that's predominantly inflammatory. What's our approach going to be here? Well, I would say definitely we're aiming to optimize topical therapies, the combination that we mentioned, plus an oral antibiotic, and I'm saying maybe in parentheses because I'm going to get into antibiotic use in the setting of, of acne in just a few slides, and then we would actually, in this case, consider early isotretinoin, I think, especially if there was no improvement to topicals. So let's take a moment to talk about oral antibiotics, systemic antibiotics for acne in this age group. They're widely used for inflammatory acne vulgaris, and the current guidelines recommend limiting use though to about three to four months due to the growing concern of antimicrobial resistance. It turns out that minocycline is the most widely prescribed tetracycline-based antibiotic for acne, followed by doxycycline. Um, There's most evidence for the use of tetracyclines, especially in this particular age group, but there are potential side effects. The GI side effects are pretty significant photosensitivity in the setting of doxycycline, and the rare case of drug-induced lupus or hepatitis in the setting of minocycline. So there are some things that that we worry about when we're putting people and exposing our teens to prolonged use of oral antibiotics. I'd say some pitfalls are that many teens cannot swallow pills, and the tetracyclines um, cause GI upset. So um, two factors that definitely might deter teens from using them. There are other antibiotics that can be used as second line and are reported in a variety of situations, and those include sulfamethoxazole, different penicillins, cephalosporins, and macrolides. And I'll just give you one little clinical pearl. I am trying to use less and less oral antibiotics in my pediatric patients with inflammatory acne, definitely turning in women um, to more hormonal therapies and considering earlier use of isotretinoin just because of these issues with concern for antimicrobial resistance, disturbing the gut flora, and other things that we're learning more about systemic antibiotics over time. The one thing I will say is that oral amoxicillin has gotten me out of a jam quite a few times. And so this is one antibiotic that does have strong anti-inflammatory properties. You don't necessarily think of using it for acne, but I've had really nice success with calming down um, some severe inflammatory acne, especially if there are contraindications or some social reasons against using isotretinoin or other therapies um, first. So just one little pearl. What about this patient, this young female with nodulocystic acne? It looks like it is starting to scar. Um, We've optimized topical therapies, and we've started oral contraceptives in this young woman. And we would consider in this case, I think, additional therapy beyond that. We want to be more aggressive. We want to prevent scarring. And so we would consider here going straight to isotretinoin or consider adding spironolactone along with her oral contraceptive pill. And I would say that I've noticed a growing trend of more spironolactone being used in women with persistent acne, even in adolescents. It's been used for many, many years in adults and and, um, with post-adolescent acne, and it seems safe in this population. Women report up to 60% improvement, and it's been demonstrated that lab monitoring isn't really necessary in otherwise healthy women. So it's another tool in the toolbox. I'm gonna talk just a minute now, again, touching on the psychosocial burden of disease. Because when we see patients with significant scarring and inflammatory acne, we know that it's a source of stress. I already said that slide, and I'll just go on to this one. So um, I wanted this to be a little earlier in the talk, but nevertheless, we have to remember that, you know, as PAs and as pediatric dermatologists and pediatricians, um, we are we might actually be, the skin visit might actually be the first touch point um, every year um, with healthcare providers during adolescence. They're not necessarily going to routine visits anymore, so this acne visit might be their one time where they're interacting with a healthcare professional. And we know that depression among adolescents is increasing. We also know that the AAP recommends screening for depressive disorders in the adolescent population once yearly, so our acne visit could then become a tool where we could screen for depression in this population. I don't know if any of you are regularly doing this, but there is a tool that's quick and easy and validated that you could start employing in your clinic, and that's the PHQ-2. It's a validated depression screening tool and has also been validated in the adolescent population. It's a short questionnaire, it assesses risk, and it just gives you an idea of who you need to be worried about and who needs to be referred, who needs extra social support or even psychiatric care. And so it's widely available. You can just search it, PHQ2, two questions, and a score of three or more is a red flag for a major depressive disorder and needs to be referred appropriately. So let's just touch a little bit on isotretinoin. This is something that Leanne is gonna cover in the next talk, so I'm not gonna belabor it and I might skip a couple of slides. But truly, isotretinoin is the closest thing we have to a cure acne. It's safe and effective when we prescribe it effectively. We know that the side effects um, include, but are not limited to, the dryness, myalgias, um, sometimes transaminitis or elevated lipid panels. And of course, um, exposure during pregnancy is catastrophic with birth defects. But we get a lot of questions about the myths and controversies surrounding isotretinoin all the time. Um, Does it cause inflammatory bowel disease, and what about mood changes and the risk for suicide and depression with Accutane? So I think I'm going to leave the next couple of slides to Leanne, um, but just say that to the best of our knowledge, we don't think that there is a statistically significant impact um, for the development of inflammatory bowel disease or suicidality and depression with Accutane. There have been meta-analyses that have looked at this, um, and we don't think, to the best of our knowledge, that there is a link. We certainly screen and we ask about mood and mood changes, and we follow this and we take it seriously in our patient population, but so far it doesn't seem like there's a cause and effect there. Um, In terms of lab monitoring on Accutane, there's really currently no no consensus. A study in 2016 um, showed that maybe we're overdoing it with labs, and it might be an extra burden of cost to the healthcare system. And so um, perhaps there's no evidence to support monthly labs aside from a urine pregnancy test um, in in our female patients who are on the medication. In terms of dosing, most patients do really well at half a mg per kg, um, I usually start there and kind of slowly ramp up because I have seen quite a few inflammatory flares when I start at you know a, a more aggressive dose. Um, it's important to um, take isotretinoin with the largest meal to enhance absorption, though some newer formulations are a little bit more readily absorbable. And then for severe, more nodular cystic, or if the, if the acne is looking a little bit more necrotic, you would definitely consider adjunctive treatment with oral or steroids um, at a dose of about one, you know, half to one mg per kg daily to try to stave off that inflammatory flare that you might get could precipitate acne fulminans. So something to think about in your more severe cases. What about diet? There's so much in clinic about acne and diet. Um, But right now, we really don't have a ton of evidence surrounding what what is the best diet. If you Google this, you will find a whole bunch of really interesting diets that teens are um, excited to be involved in and showing before and after photos that are really impressive and who knows what else is happening, but it's definitely a hot topic. Um, Small studies do indicate that low glycemic index is probably good for acne. It's probably good for everything, but acne too, sort of more anti-inflammatory, And in at least one or two studies, high dairy consumption has been linked to increased acne. Spearmint tea is something that has been used um, in the world of hirsutism and acne because there is some thought that it may have some anti-androgenic properties. And so I have some teens ask me about this sometimes. Should I be drinking spearmint tea? And I say, okay, that's fine with me. I mean, if it could have any benefit... Um, I don't see any harm in it, and there are at least a couple of papers that that actually talk about um, the spearmint extract and it having, perhaps, an anti-androgen impact. Um, We've all probably, in our practice, seen our teens who are doing a bit of bodybuilding and weightlifting who are using a lot of whey protein supplements. I do think this is problematic and can have an impact on acne, and that has been reported. But overall, restrictive diets are not recommended. So just some special considerations in skin of color. Patients with darker skin types get more side effects from from their acne. They get more scarring. um, They get more post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation that can last for longer than the acne. So it's really important to address it. And I believe it's important to be a little more aggressive a little earlier to prevent this sequelae um, in our patients with skin of color. So let's Talk about what our approach would be in this patient with mixed comedonal and inflammatory acne and a lot of significant post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, chin, cheeks, forehead. Um, We'd be thinking about hormonal therapies just based on the distribution of her acne and the gender. So um, oral contraceptive would be something we'd be thinking about. Optimizing topical therapy, of course, that's sort of step one. And then I would actually um, push for early isotretinoin in a patient like this, in conjunction with very strict um, um, photo protection, so sunscreen and moisturizers. Because I do think that the xerosis and the dryness that can be induced by our topical retinoids and if we're doing isotretinoin can exacerbate hyperpigmentation in this group. So really important. And you can have a really nice outcome if we start early and we remember our, our sun protection. So just a little plug for the Society for Pediatric Dermatology. We do have online education videos and patient education tools. We have a bunch of terrific handouts and we want you to be using them. If you go to pedsderm.net, you'll find a whole bunch of resources there. You might even see some very embarrassing familiar faces. However, it's all there for you to to utilize. Um, So in this version of the talk, I had had some pre and post test questions, but let's just do them now. So this patient, um, with this severity and degree of acne on the back and scarring, um, I think we can all agree what the most effective treatment would be here. I think isotretinoin would be very much indicated in this patient. And then which statement is true regarding isotretinoin? It's a cause of inflammatory bowel disease. Severe dryness is not a side effect. It's not it is associated with increased risk for depression and suicide. It's safe during pregnancy or may impact lipid levels. And isotretinoin is most likely to impact lipid levels. And then a six-year-old boy presents to clinic with numerous comedones on the forehead, cheeks, and within the ear. And what's the most appropriate next step? Start your combination topicals. Do a complete physical exam and review of growth charts. Counsel that acne is normal in this age group. I think now we could all agree that we would be doing a physical exam and reviewing his growth charts. So lots of references for you to look at, and thanks again for your attention. Sorry again about the technical difficulties. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.